world's great minds have always been driven by curiosity. Mae Jemison cycled through obsessions with archaeology and anthropology in elementary school before serving in the Peace Corps after college and eventually becoming the first African-American woman astronaut. Leonardo da Vinci's personal to-do list once included an assignment to himself to investigate and describe the tongue of a woodpecker, presumably just for fun. So if you've ever pondered something so weird you didn't even know how to look up the answer, take heart. You are in excellent company. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. Randall Monroe is author of the science question and answer blog, What If?, and the webcomic XKCD. As a science communicator, he knows that the body of knowledge we use to answer serious questions applies just as well to silly ones, but the silly ones can make the science more fun and less intimidating. So those are the ones he embraces in his work. His new book is called What If 2? Additional Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. Randall, welcome back to Think. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I really do love this idea that we can all learn essential principles of physics and other kinds of science from super serious stuff that appears in textbooks, but that's not the only way we can gain understanding. Was there a particular moment when the value of the ridiculous as a way into science really clicked for you? You know, it's funny. I I did a degree in physics, and the they would always try to bring up, you know, they'll give you an example of like a ball rolling down an inclined plane and, you know, or something like that. And 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 they would sometimes try to add a little bit of color to it, you know, like make it a little bit more interesting, but it still felt like homework. And I feel like for me, it's almost I've been I've come in from the other direction. Like I've started with a question that I really want to know the answer to. And then in trying to answer it more and more science slips in. I realize I'm doing a whole bunch of calculation to figure this out. And then at a certain point, I think, wait a minute, this has just taught me a bunch of new, uh, uh, new exciting stuff. Is it and more so I've sort of come at it that way. Excuse me for interrupting. Is it more challenging no. to sort of write the problem that will solve these questions because they're so bizarre? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's always interesting tackling these really off the wall questions because often like, I think a lot of the questions people send in to me, these are things that no one has ever seriously tried to answer before. Um, and and sometimes that that can be fun, but it also, like, you don't even know where to start. You're like, okay, has anyone researched this? No. Has anyone researched anything close to this? No. Okay, what's the nearest, you know, science? What's the nearest paper? You know, what's what's some data somewhere that I could get to, to try to answer this? It's like, you, you really don't know where to start. You have a lot of science knowledge yourself, but occasionally I know that you consult with others to, you know, research answers. Do you find yourself amending the core question when you make that first cold call to somebody at a university? Do you go more to the ball rolling down a hill problem than the snowball rolling down Mount Everest problem? Yeah, I I, I sort of straddle the line. I feel like in it's like uh, uh, in the first moments of talking to them, I want to impress on them that like, I'm I'm serious about this. Like I'm I'm. They don't need to you know try to figure out. Like I want I want to show my cred that like I understand the the science here. Um, so like I got a question from a little kid about uh, what would happen if you filled the solar system with soup out to Jupiter, and so like if I were contacting like a uh, an, an astrophysicist about this, 
I definitely might, for the first call, say like, well, I'm interested in the gravitational collapse of spherical, of large spherical masses of the density of water, and like not mention the word soup until like <laughs> the second email. Be like, okay, now how would this apply to soup? But what I find is scientists are usually really like once you've got that, you know, you're sort of on the same page and they're taking you seriously. Scientists are like just as excited about this stuff as little kids, you know, if not more so. Um, so I've I found that's once you get over that initial like email, uh, they're usually just excited to take the premise and run with it. What does happen, by the way? I have to say I was I was excited to read about this uh prospect of somebody making a little snowball at the top of Mount Everest and sending it down the mountain so that it gathers snow along the way. Um, the answer is ultimately kind of disappointing. What happens? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely thought about that as a kid because I discovered you can start the snowball rolling and it gets bigger as it rolls because it picks up more material. But what I learned is that, that a snowball, uh, sort of the rate of growth slows down as it gets bigger for reasons to do with like the area of the snowball snowball grows faster, you know, uh, grows more slowly than the volume. But um, at a certain size, the snowball will break apart under its own weight and form lots of little snowballs. Uh, and this is why if you if you like look for like world's biggest snowball, they're all sort of human sized and most of them uh, end with the snowball breaking apart. Um, and so if you start at the top of a mountain where the snow was just right to to form a larger and larger snowball, um, it would end up breaking apart. And then those little snowballs would also start forming larger snowballs. Uh, and so you would have, in effect, created an avalanche. Uh, and generally, snow slopes aren't uh, in a situation where you could do that, because if they were on the edge of forming lots of little snowballs, then it would happen already when the wind blew a random chunk of snow. You have a, a disclaimer at the start of the book, like, do not try any of this yourself. Do you have serious worry that anybody would, would get an idea from this book and try and stage an experiment? Well, I joke about how, you know, people shouldn't try uh, uh, things in the book because I'm I'm uh, I'm a cartoonist. I'm not a safety expert. I, I like when, you know, learning about, about things that explode dramatically. So I'm certainly uh, not not giving advice about health and safety. Um, but also most of the stuff in in my books, it would really be difficult to try. You know, the the like there's a chapter about about whether once the sun dies and collapses into a spinning, you know, white dwarf star, will it ever get cold enough to touch? And I laid laid out a plan for how you might try to touch the sun or at least touch it with a robotic probe. Um, I don't think it would work, but I also don't think any of my readers are going to be in a position to try this anytime soon. So you're safe there. <laughs> Your insurance yeah, company like is okay like with Mythbusters this. does a lot of stuff that you could try in a backyard. My my articles tend more toward like crashing planets into each other or like draining the oceans or something where where you shouldn't try this at home, but also good luck if you want to try this at home. I like the question about how many humans a T-Rex would need to eat every day had they somehow coexisted. The number is surprisingly small given the reputation of T-Rexes. Yeah, you know, like I grew up watching like Jurassic Park and those movies and and you think of this the T-Rex as this like Godzilla type monster that just stomps around eating people left and right. But when I when I looked at the latest research on dinosaur metabolism and like the body size of a T-Rex and the caloric content of a human body, 
I realized that if a T-Rex ate a person, that would probably uh, fill it up for the, you know, the next day or two. So like, you know, in, in, in the movies, when you see it, the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, you know, eats, uh, there's the part where it, it, you know, eats a lawyer and then it turns and storms <laughs> toward the other heroes. And I'm like, oh, it should be full now. It should go and it's got to go take a nap. <laughs> Early on in the book, you take this question from somebody who was curious about what would happen. It's like an action movie thing. If somebody were hanging on to a helicopter blade as it started to rotate, this is essentially a lesson in centrifugal force, which, you know, most people are not eager to go look up. But it makes the question really interesting. Walk us through or maybe spin us through what would actually happen in that situation. Yeah, when I heard that question, I immediately pictured a kind of James Bond action right. movie type scenario where someone is like flung from a helicopter that's taking off and flying through the air. But like this is it's like a hilariously undignified, undramatic uh, scenario if you play out what happens. Um, the the first reason is my favorite thing about the scenario is if you watch helicopters starting up, the blades take a while to get moving. You know, the rotor doesn't it it takes like, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds to make the first, you know, full circle or two, which means, and what I like about that is it means that if you were hanging there on the blade, you would have a really long amount of time to make awkward eye contact with the pilot as they're turning <laughs> on the helicopter. You know, it wouldn't be like they turn it on and there's a scream. It would just be like they turn it on and then you just sort of slowly rotate into view in front of them, like dangling there like, uh, hi. Hey, I'm just uh, I'm doing a thing for I'm just I wanted to see what would uh, okay I'll see you again in a moment, <laughs> you know and and the other thing that surprised me was when I did the calculations about the centrifugal force that you'd feel you know the 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 way the blade would be pulling on you to accelerate you um, that you would fall off really embarrassingly quickly <laughs> like those the the rotors look like they're moving slowly but they're really big. And they're so they're sort of moving faster than they look. And so like by the time it even made its first like full circle, you would actually you'd be flung out with enough force that you would have a really hard time hanging on to the blade. And it's like not easy to hang on to a helicopter rotor in the first place. So but even if you got a good handhold, um, it wouldn't take long for you to be uh, uh, flung outwards so hard that, you know, you you would not be able to hold on no matter how good your grip was. This was a good one. So you just kind of bop onto the ground next to the helicopter. <laughs> Very the, like un-James Bond. Right. No stunt no stunt person needed necessarily. Yeah. So we all know we can be overwhelmed by heat if we stand next to something that is very large and very hot. Somebody had a question about a very cold large object at zero degrees Kelvin, which I looked this up and it's like negative 460 Fahrenheit. Why would our proximity, a proximity to that object not freeze us instantly? Yeah, you know, that that sort of surprised me too. Like I was thinking, I know that if you're next to something that's really, 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 really hot, you can get vaporized, you know, like, but, but, and absolute zero, it seems like absolute cold should be the same as, you know, extreme heat, it should be bad, but, but it really isn't. Um, cold things don't emit rays of cold the way hot things emit infrared or other kinds of radiation. And so if you stand next to a cold thing, the main thing you'd notice is that like that side of your body, uh, normally when you're standing in a room, you're radiating heat because you're warm, but the walls are warm too. You know, they're not quite as warm as a person, but they're a lot warmer than absolute zero. So they radiate heat back to you. Um, but if you stand next to something that's zero degrees, 
you would feel that side of your body get cold a little bit faster. Um, this is similar to an effect you can get if you go out at night and look up at the sky when it's dark and when there are no clouds. Um, if you hold an umbrella or something in front of your face uh, and then you move it away, when you move it away from your face and look up at the sky, your face feels colder because it's radiating heat off into space, but space isn't radiating heat back to you because mm -hmm. the sky is very cold. So you would, you'd, you would uh, if you stood near a thing that was zero degrees Kelvin, you would find you'd, the room would start to get chilly and you would, you would need to put on a jacket. <laughs> um, but what's this about an incredibly cold thing could set our house on fire? Yeah, well, so really cold stuff can be dangerous, but in kind of surprising ways. One of the ways is, of course, standing near it might be okay, but you definitely shouldn't touch it. It would be like, uh, you know, how like you learn not to like lick the the playground equipment on a cold day because your tongue can freeze to it. Right. Um, so you definitely wouldn't want to touch it. But also, if you're just near it, um, air has oxygen in it. And one thing that cryogenic engineers, people who work with really cold stuff run into is something that is really cold near absolute zero is below the, uh, the, the boiling point of oxygen. And so oxygen can condense out of the air onto the surface of the cold object. And if you have a whole lot of liquid oxygen concentrated in one, in one place, it can be explosive. And so if you have really, really cold equipment, it becomes a fire hazard because of the liquid oxygen buildup. I love that you took on this question about swing sets because I think every little kid dreams of a swing chain that is long enough to carry you just unbelievably high into the air, soaring over, you know, the trees and your house just powered by our own legs. There are actually limits to this governed by physics, right? Yeah, yeah, because when you make a swing bigger, you can swing higher up to a point, but if you make it too big, then so each time you know anyone who's played on a swing set as a kid it learns how to how to pump to get yourself moving where you lean back and kick your feet forward and then lean forward and tuck your feet under you uh, sort of repeatedly um, but that gives you a little kick each time but if the swing set is too big by the time you swing all the way out you then give yourself a little kick by leaning and then you swing all the way back but the speed you gain from that little kick you lose over the course of a long swing to like air resistance. And so even if you can swing farther forward and backward, you can't actually get higher. It turns out if you want to get the most height possible, the optimal swing set height is around like the size of a large playground swing, like eight or 12 feet. Hmm. What are the physical limits that prevent us from making a building more than say three times the height of the tallest buildings we have now? Well, this is that we're not totally sure because the the real limit is money. Yeah. Um, there's just like we could build buildings taller than our tallest buildings up to, a you know, like you said, a, a couple of times taller, at least than the uh, the tallest current buildings like the Burj Khalifa. Um, but it would cost so much and there's no place where anyone particularly wants a building that tall or at least not enough to pay for it. But as you get bigger, you, you run into structural limits. There's wind is a huge problem for skyscrapers. You have to build them strong enough to stand up to the wind. Um, but then there's some sort of surprising problems like elevators. 
Uh, if you go into tall skyscrapers, you find they often have these complicated systems of elevators to a lobby partway up, and then you get off of that elevator and get onto another one. Um, and the reason for that is that if you had too many floors, the elevators, uh, the number of elevators you'd need would be so high that the bottom of the building would be all elevators. Um, and so you then have to add more space to make up for the elevators, but then, and, and your building just ends up getting really wide. Is a space elevator at least theoretically possible? That's one, it, not with the materials we have right now. Um, it would be a big project uh, and it would require some breakthroughs in materials science and in uh, power transmission. But they're not totally inconceivable breakthroughs. And this idea of basically a tether that's attached from the surface of the earth out to uh, orbit far away would make it really easy to get stuff up into space cleanly without a lot of pollution. Um, it could really, really change uh, you know, our relationship with the planet and with outer space. And so it's a cool idea. And so a lot of people are taking those problems seriously. Um, we're not quite there yet, but there are a lot of people who are very hopeful about it and working very hard at developing these super strong materials. We'd need to build one. The first time someone pointed out to me that there's no particular reason that north and south and east and west appear where they do on our globes and maps, it sort of blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. I I, I feel like it, it makes sense to have either north or south up, but maybe that's just because of the kinds of diagrams I'm used to with the way my, you know, with how English and how written English works. Um, you know, the one that weirds, that weirds me out, I don't know why I find this so strange, but when I'm like looking at a diagram of the core of the earth, every now and then, like I'll, I'll be reading some geology paper and I'll realize that the thing I'm reading about, it isn't often, you know, floating around in space, you know, in front of me somewhere. It's not in a book. It's directly under me. Hmm. And it's weird to think that no matter where I am, the core of the earth is straight down. It's like, like I'm just when a geology professor be lecturing and they're gesturing at a diagram, it's it's somehow it's like you can you can spend a lot of time totally forgetting that the thing you're talking about is the thing you're standing on. I don't know why that I I just get hung up on that. It's just really strange to think it's right there. It's below me. This was pretty bizarre. Somebody wanted to know, like, what would happen if the core of the Earth stopped generating heat? And the answer is for a while anyway, not much. Yeah, yeah, it's surprising. It'd be it'd be fine. Um, the the core of the Earth generates heat, but nearly all of the heat here at the surface, something like ninety nine point nine percent of it, um, comes from sunlight. So the Earth is warm because it's near the sun. Um, there is a tiny amount of heat flowing up out of the ground, and there are a few places where you can really notice that, uh, you know, like near a volcano or in one of those geyser fields, but. For the most part, heat, geothermal heat, heat from the earth, um, it doesn't play a big role in our environment and in uh, uh, like the habitability of earth. Uh, it does drive the still sort of mysterious processes that, that drive plate tectonics. So if the core of the earth stopped producing heat, probably the plates at some point after a while, you know, would, would grind to a halt and uh, we'd no longer have a bunch of these uh, geologic processes that are important long term. But short term, it, it might be it might be OK. 
Somebody asked you what sounds like a simple question, uh, Randall, if space is hot or cold, and you explained that our solar system is relatively hot, but it feels really cold. So what is that about? Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, space, on average, the whole over the whole universe, if you look up like what's the temperature of space, you'll find that it's just a couple of degrees above absolute zero. Um, and that's that's true for the universe overall. But if you're near a star like we are, um, the, the space here is actually really hot, but it's also really thin. So like the the there's just a few molecules floating around. It's not like here on Earth, if you're in hot air, there's you know air molecules bashing against you all the time. But if you go out into space, the space is hot which means the molecules are moving fast, but there are very few of them. Like there, are, so you're you're kind of floating between a lot of these sparse molecules. So they they might hit you and they're going quickly, but which means that they are hot technically, but they don't carry much heat to you. So if you float around in space, you won't feel the heat. It's just sort of by the theoretical definition of temperature, it's hot. But for for a place that's thousands of degrees, uh, you can still freeze to death there. How often have you been really excited to go down the rabbit hole on someone's question and then ultimately found yourself stumped or found that there is no good answer? Um, I think that that definitely happens sometimes, um, especially when, like often there's something where I think, oh, maybe I could calculate an answer to this this way. And then, uh, and then I would work on it for a while and then say, oh, no, you know what, um, to answer this, I need to understand this, like, physics concept. But, you know, that's way beyond me. Uh, I need to read more about the, I need, to, I need to read this paper to understand it, but to read that paper, I need to learn this branch of math. And I'll, I'll just, like, set it aside and be like, okay, someday if I learn, if I learn to do this calculation, then I can come back and answer this. Um, and there are some, I have some biology questions sitting around where, like, I think there's really, like, just about nothing in the universe as complicated as as biology. And it's really cool. Um, I have, there's, uh, photosynthesis is really neat, but it's really complicated. So I have some photosynthesis questions that I've just been, like, working on now and then, but uh, someday I hope to understand it well enough to answer. Randall, we call petroleum a fossil fuel. Uh, historically, plastic is a petroleum derivative. So somebody wanted to know, is there a fair amount of actual dinosaur in your average plastic toy dinosaur? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a fun a fun question and sent me down a rabbit hole of learning about where our different kinds of petroleum products come from. Um, and it it turns out that that most of the the uh, petroleum we get, comes from marine sediments. Uh, and so these are these are things from uh, like that build up on the seafloor. And they come from mostly marine life forms, everything from algae to fish. And for the most part, most dinosaurs uh, were on land. So there there might be a lot of marine organisms in oil, but not that much uh, dinosaur. But the the process is complicated. Different oil fields have a different geologic history. Different petroleum products come from different places. So, um, you know, there's probably a little bit of dinosaur. But <laughs> water uh, has been cycling through uh, in and out of stuff for a long time. 
And so there's probably a lot more dinosaur, like water that has been part of a dinosaur in you and me than there is in a plastic dinosaur. Wow. The expression, Rome wasn't built in a day, is supposed to remind us to be patient and let things happen in due time. But somebody wanted to know, how many people would it actually take if the plan was to build Rome in a day? And it turns out the problem is not just available labor, it's traffic jams. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, even if you if you put all the, you know, even if you had enough labor, if you gathered everyone in the world together, um, they could barely fit in the area of Rome, you know, let alone like coordinate a construction project with material coming in and out. There are only so many, you know, they say all roads lead to Rome, but it's like there are only so many of them and they're all going to get clogged by construction uh, equipment. But it was also a fun chance to try to figure out like how to estimate how long large construction projects take and how much labor labor they require. And so I read a lot of these this research on like if you build an airport, how how does the time and the labor scale with the size of the airport? And so I tried plugging in, you know, if you wanted to build a city that's exactly, you know, the size of Rome with that many buildings and that many different, you know, materials, just by looking up what are the what's the the real estate value of all of this all of the buildings and all of the land in Rome and what would it take to build a facility like that? And there are a few ways to estimate it and uh, including including just assuming that the entire thing is a tile floor, just saying, okay, well, what if I take the rate that a person charges to to tile a floor and tell them to tile a floor the size of Rome, uh, what would that cost? And And I found that if you estimating a bunch of different ways, I came up with sort of similar estimates for all of them. Uh, and 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 so it's a neat testament to how sometimes if you, want to very roughly guess a big quantity, you can just try a couple of different ways of estimating it, see if they mostly agree with each other, and that can give you a a good idea without having to do a really uh, thorough calculation. I like that kind of estimation. Yeah, we were taught a little bit about that in school, but nobody ever ever gave us something quite so much fun (laughs) to think about when we were learning how to estimate. Yeah, yeah. There was another question like that where someone wanted to know, um, is there enough paint in the world to paint the entire world? (laughs) And that was another case where I just thought, okay, well, if I wanted to paint, let's say, like, I have no idea, like, what, whether there is enough paint in the world to paint the world a thousand times over or whether there's a thousandth as much paint as we would need. You know, it could be, I could be way off in either direction. But so I just sat down and thought, okay, what do I know about paint? Like buildings are painted. How many how many rooms do I think there are in the world per person? You know, let's assume that maybe this percentage of them are painted. Uh, how much paint does it take to paint a room? Well, I'm not sure about that either, but I know we had paint cans in my house as a kid and, you know, we painted a room and I ne- I only ever saw a couple at a time. So, you know, I just like putting together these things. I like sitting around and just trying to think, okay, what are the things that I know that can help me figure out just an order of magnitude um, to get a sense of like of of whether this is going to be way too big or way too small or maybe it's in just about the right range where I need to do a more careful calculation. I love the question about whether a human being could possibly ingest a whole cloud, and the answer is no <laughs> and yes. Yeah, if if you if you. If you drain the, if you like condense all the water out of a cloud, 
Um, a cloud that's like the size of a house would only contain like one or two glasses of water, which would be no problem to ingest. Uh, you know, you could just drink those. Um, but if you try to swallow a piece of a cloud, the problem is if you swallow air, then after any, you know, it, like when you drink soda, you'll you'll burp it back out, and the air that you burp out would actually have more moisture in it than the air that you were swallowing, and so if you tried to eat a cloud without condensing the water out separately, um, you would end up just creating more cloud. If we could trace every single branch of our family tree, how many relatives would we have? Yeah, I well, I'm curious, you know, anytime you read about, oh, here's this, you know, this ancient skeleton dug up, it, it, part of you wonders like, oh, I wonder if that's someone, I'm, if that's a relative of mine. Um, and we and scientists, you know, geneticists, uh, uh, archaeologists have known for a long time that past a certain point uh, in the past, basically everyone has the same set of ancestors, like all humans who lived before a certain point, which is just a few thousand years ago, um, all humans who left any descendants at all are the ancestors of everyone. Like our family tree is fully meshed if you go back far enough. But what someone asked me was, how many humans who have ever lived are my ancestors? Like what percentage of them? And so I did, I did a bunch of calculations by looking at the, you know, that research into genetics and like what percentage of people throughout history have like left descendants, what percentage make it to adulthood. Um, and combining all these, I came up with an answer that was like about 10 or 12% of all humans who have ever lived are your ancestors. Uh, and and that seems like a weird number. I don't know whether I would have expected it to be higher or lower, but it's weird that it's like 10, 11, 12 percent. Like that's a I don't know I don't know why that's so surprising, but yeah, about 10 percent of all humans who have ever lived. That's astonishing to me. That seems like a lot. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, it but it's because of the way. Uh, once you start leaving descendants, if someone leaves more than a few generations of descendants. Like it is, it's certainly many people leave no descendants, but once you leave more than a few, um, exponential growth takes over. It's sort of like, you know how you have, if you have like two, four grandparents, eight great grandparents, 16 great, great grandparents, and it works the same way with descendants. Like as long as the line doesn't, doesn't end quickly, uh, exponential growth takes over and soon everyone is descended from you. So it's like our, our we're all we're all related. Uh, uh, we're all tied together so many different times going back up the family tree that that anyone who's part of the part of the tree is sort of connected to a large chunk of the rest of humanity. It's it's kind of neat. Uh, briefly before I let you go, I mean, people do ask you some bizarre things. Somebody like wanted to know, like, what would happen if I put a vacuum hose up to my eyeball and turned it on? <laughs> do, you, do you always assume that these are asked in good fun? Or do you ever worry a little about the people who come up with these ideas? <laughs> now and then, I mean, someone will be like, hey, what would be the best way to dispose of of a body. And I'm like, I don't know if I should answer this. Uh, I, I also, I'll get a lot of people are excited. They'll watch Air Force One and they'll say, I have an idea about how you could, you know, <laughs> like uh, attack Air Force One or something. And I'm like, I am not, I'm not going to touch this one. I don't want to get a call from the Secret Service. Um, but, uh, you know, I think those people are just mostly just excited about 
excited about the concepts and about science and and you know i don't i don't think there are a lot of actual murderers writing in asking for tips on uh uh anything like that Randall Monroe. I, I think everyone just gets excited about this stuff. Randall Monroe is author of the science question and answer blog, What If? and the webcomic XKCD. His new book is What If 2? Additional Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. Randall, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for making time for us. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check us out on our website, think.kera.org. I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.